Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today comes from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 12. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the faithless. Our proverb today addresses two very familiar things. First of all, our eyes, and then the words that are spoken. Here we see a connection between the eyes of the Lord and the words which are spoken here on earth. The phrase, eyes of the Lord, are substitute for his providence in the affairs of men. Here the Lord's eyes are watchers, preserving and guarding. And from this verse we also see that he is preserving knowledge. And how do the eyes of the Lord preserve or guard knowledge? We can look at the second line of the proverb for a clue. This says that Yahweh, the Lord God, overthrows the words of a treacherous man, and this is in contrast with what the Lord does with the words of a wise, faithful, or righteous man. And what are the words of faithfulness or faithless? Sorry. What are the words of the faithless? A faithless man speaks orders, he makes plans, he announces judgments, but the Lord doesn't preserve or guard these words. Our modern culture often speaks the words of self-proclaimed wisdom when it speaks of a universe that exploded into being by chance, or mankind has evolved from monkeys. Children can be held in the womb and then are killed. And capital punishment isn't really a threat. Sodomy is moral, men and women are equal, and corporal punishment warps children, and the greatest of love is self-love. All these are lies that the Lord reveals. However, God overthrows these words of his faithless knowledge. Likewise, the Lord preserves and watches over and guards and makes effective words and knowledge of the faithful, the righteous, and the wise. Words are our primary tools of communication. We use these words in the eyes of the Lord are watching to preserve knowledge. Communication is never simply a matter of clarity of expression or of an idea. It is never simply a matter of communication between just two people. God, who is with his word and who is his word, is always involved in every act of communication. God either protects knowledge, keeps his eyes, he keeps his eyes on knowledge and words to confirm and give them success, or he frustrates words and makes them fail. Good communication therefore requires faithfulness and righteousness before God. And repentance is always the part of the answer to poor communication. And this does remind us of our need to confess our own sins. I invite you to kneel where you are if you're willing and able. struggle with pride, right? Because the moment you say, well, pride is not a problem for me, actually, well, it just became a problem for you at that point. So, of course, pride is a problem for all of us, and the reason why pride is a problem is because we don't like to be humbled. Being humbled hurts, 
Not to be repetitious, but being humbled is humiliating. And who wants to be humiliated? None of us do. It's not a pleasant experience, is it? But it's a necessary one. Actually, that's Jesus's, our Lord's condition for us coming to Him. If we're going to come to Him as His people, He requires, He demands that we come to Him like our Canaanite sister here in this passage from Matthew. He demands that we come to Him without pretense. And that means we come to Him honestly, confessing our sin, acknowledging who we really are. That's a hard thing. It's not easy to do. But as we're going to learn from the example of this dear Canaanite believer, when we do come to the Lord in humility and not in pretense, the result is blessing. Because those who humble themselves, the Lord will exalt. Right? Let's read his word now. Please listen carefully. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The word of God. Brothers and sisters, to make any sense of what ensues in this passage, and it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to us, does it, at our first reading? Because we're not accustomed to thinking of Jesus responding to people who need help like he responds to this Canaanite woman. He calls her a dog, basically. Right? That doesn't fit with our mold of who Jesus is. So we have to make sense of this. Right? And in order to do that, we have to pay attention to verse 22. Because verse 22 explains much of what follows in the remainder of this event. The mother who came to Jesus to help was not a Jew. She was a Canaanite. And that makes sense, okay? Because our Lord, as Matthew tells us, at this point, our Lord had traveled up near the region of the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And that region and those cities were predominantly Gentile. Right? There weren't many Jews up there, but there were a lot of Gentiles. So running into a Canaanite was pretty much inevitable for the Lord while he was up there. That was bound to happen. He was going to run into a Canaanite sooner or later. And you know, when we think about it, the text doesn't say this, but we can put two and two together. And we know that our Lord is omniscient, and he continued to be God in the flesh while he was here. And so I have to believe that this encounter with the Canaanite woman played a big part in his motivation for going up to that region in the first place. He wanted this to happen. He wanted to run into a Canaanite woman so that we could learn from her example. But again, that's conjecture on my part. Now, let's remember something from the Old Testament. Most of us are familiar with that, I would hope. 
Who were the Canaanites? You don't have to answer, but just you know, collect that right now from your memory. Who, who were the Canaanites? Well, let's revisit that for a moment. The Canaanites were those whom God had what? Blessed and called his own? No. The Canaanites were those whom the Lord had commanded his people to drive out from the promised land. If they refused to surrender to Israel peaceably, then they were to be driven out, and they were even to be put to the sword if they refused to go. That is who the Canaanites were. So historically, up to this point in history, when we look at the history between the Canaanites and God, the people of God, the Canaanites have been the, the determined enemies of God and his people. Vow, avowed enemies of God and his people. And with good reason. Because they were indeed vile idol worshippers, weren't they? The Old Testament tells us what Canaanites did, and they were despicable people. They deserved the sword as much as we deserve the sword for our sins. The Canaanites were wicked and vile. And they were a prime example of why the Jews hated Gentiles in the first place. They were a prime example of why the Jews called Gentiles dogs in the uncircumcision. If you were to ask a Jewish person, what's a Gentile like? Well, look at the Canaanites. Look what the Canaanites do. They worship idols. They hate God. They would sacrifice their children to Moloch and Ammon and all these other false gods. They're horrendous. And when we remember that history, and we remember who the Canaanites were, and their hatred for God, and their hatred for his people, that's what makes this dear Canaanite woman's response to Jesus so surprising. Because you may, maybe you don't recognize it, so I'll tell you, how she responds to Jesus here is even shocking, that she responds to him like she does. Why is it shocking and surprising? Well, what does she call him? She calls Jesus the son of David. Jesus, son of David. Oh, there is so much in that name, saints. There is so much significance in the fact that that is what she called him. You see, when she called him the son of David, while we know she did not have a fully orb understanding of who the Messiah was and what he had come to do, not even the disciples understood that completely, she at least knew that this is the Jews' Messiah. He's the son of David. He's come to save the Jews, somehow. And when she called him the son of David, she was also recognizing that not only was he the Jews' Messiah, it also meant that he was not her Messiah, as far as she could tell, as far as she knew. Because she was a Canaanite, not a Jew. The son of David came to who? Well, Jesus tells us who the son of David came to. The lost sheep of Israel, not the lost sheep of Canaan. So when she said, Jesus, son of the Lord, son of David, have mercy upon me, she was recognizing that he was a Jewish Messiah and not her Messiah. You have not come for me. You've come for Israel. She already knew that. So when Jesus says to her, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel, she got it. She got that point. And yet, she was still coming to him. There's the faith, saints. As far as she knew, he had not come for her and her people or her daughter. But she still went to him anyway. This made for an awkward situation, to put it mildly. Here's the son of David, just come to save the lost sheep of Israel, and here's a Canaanite woman 
descended from avowed enemies of God and his people, coming to him seeking his help. And we can see this awkwardness in our Lord's response to her in verse 24. Because he had come for Israel, not for her. That's basically what he tells her. I've come for Israel, not for you. Now, I want to pause here for a moment, because this might not make sense to us, what I'm saying right now and how Jesus responds. And we have to remember there's a thing called progressive revelation. What that means is this. The people living at that moment did not know everything we know. You see, there was this thing called the mystery of Christ, and Paul explains it in Ephesians chapter 3. And what is the mystery of Christ that has been revealed after Pentecost? The mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles are co-heirs with the Jews. We know that. We know on this side of Pentecost, having a fully fleshed out New Testament available to us, we understand the mystery of Christ. It's been revealed to us. But that mystery of Christ, the Gentiles are co-heirs with the Jews, they didn't know that yet. They didn't know it yet. right? So I want to make that caveat here. Jesus knew it. Of course he knew it. His plan, the covenant of redemption, he understood what he had come to do. But that hadn't been fully revealed to his disciples or to the world yet. So he was aware of the mystery, but no one else was. So here's the question. Since the Lord Jesus was aware that he had indeed come to save the world, and not only the Jews, then why does he respond to this woman, at least apparently, so coldly? And it does seem cold, doesn't it, how the Lord Jesus responds to her? It seems very cold. Like I said, it doesn't seem characteristic of the Jesus that we're accustomed to. Well, in order to understand our Lord's purpose and his response to her, I think it'd be helpful for us to take a careful look at how his interaction with the woman progresses over time, to see how she responds to him. That's really what I want to draw your attention to. How does she respond to Jesus and the things that he says to her? So let's think about that for a moment. Here's a thing I think that should stand out to us. Every time the Lord seemingly refuses her, she responds with more humility. Every time Jesus refuses her, or apparently seems to push her away, she responds by humbling herself even more. Let me explain. First, he outright ignores her. She is following him, probably in the street. Understand that. This is not private in a home. This is out in public. And he's walking down the way with his disciples in tow. And here comes this desperate mother whose dear daughter is being oppressed by a demon. And she is crying out to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's ignoring her. That is humiliating, saints. Could you imagine yourself going out here on Walnut Street, and here goes someone walking by, who, and you need their help, and so you go out crying after them, Bob, Bob, I need your help, and Bob keeps on going and ignores you and pays you no attention, and yet you are so desperate that you are persistent, and your desperation drives you to persistence so that you are following him down the street, calling after him so that the friends that are with him say, would you please do something about this guy? Because he keeps calling out to you. And it's getting embarrassing. That would be humiliating if you can imagine yourself doing that. Doing that out in public, calling after someone. Yet she was persistent. 
because she was humble. She knew of her need for Christ, and that need drove her to persistently pursue him. She is ignored by Jesus, and the disciples eventually become exasperated. They say, Lord, do something. Either give her what she wants or send her away, but do something about her, because this is becoming, she's making a scene. Then he says this to her, or he states this anyway. He says that he's only come to the lost sheep of Israel. Now here he's making a clear insinuation, isn't he? He's saying something to this woman. He is insinuating that she is not entitled to his help because she is not of Israel. In other words, this Canaanite woman has no right to ask for anything from him. I have not come for you, Canaanite. I have come for Israel. Get the message. Do you understand? That's why I'm not, that's why I'm ignoring you. You are a Canaanite. And I am the son of David. I'm not here for you. So after he says that and makes it clear to her, I'm not here for you. At least apparently. Well, how does she respond? Does she walk away? Is she offended? No. She humbles herself even more. Now she stops following him and she gets instead, she gets on her knees in front of Jesus. And the only thing she can get out is, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. That's it. Help me. Wouldn't you do the same if your daughter was being oppressed by a demon? What else would you say? Lord, help me. Honestly, had I been the Lord, which I am not, thank God, but had I been, I would have caved at that point. My goodness, here's this mother. I have daughters, I know. And her daughter's suffering, and she wants my help. I have the ability to help. I would have cracked. I would have caved. Okay, yes, certainly. Where is she? That's not what Jesus says, is it? And this is where I think our minds really become confused. He responds to her. That may be hard for us to fathom, in a way. As that woman is there kneeling before him, seeking his help, begging for his help, humbling herself. This is what Jesus says to her. Here are his words. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That is her, that's his response to this woman, to this mother with an oppressed daughter. It's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. And you know what he's insinuating there? He's telling her, listen, if I were to help you, Canaanite, that would be like giving the children's bread to the dogs. What is he saying about her? What is he saying about your, her daughter? They're dogs. They're Gentiles. They're unworthy of his help. They're not entitled. They have no right to expect anything from him. That's what Jesus is saying to her. You're a dog. Your daughter is a dog. You're both Canaanites. I'm not here for you. That's what he keeps telling her. I'm not here for you. How does she respond to this? And this is a test of her faith, by the way, as we're going to see. Jesus is testing her faith. He's not being a jerk. He is testing her faith. He is showing us, saints, in this woman's example, he is showing us how each one of us need to come to him, like her. He's testing her faith in this. How does she respond? Let me ask you this. How would you respond? 
If you were to come to the Lord and say, I need your help, and He said, you know what? You know what? It's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. You know, I'd be tempted to say, to be offended. And say, I'm no dog, I'm an American. Haven't you ever heard of American exceptionalism before? But she doesn't do that, does she? She's not offended. And that's what amazes me about this dear woman's humility. She is not offended by what Jesus says to her. She doesn't respond by saying, haven't you ever heard of Canaanite exceptionalism? What does she say when Jesus says that she is a dog? <laughs> this, this should really strike us. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You are right. That is what I am. I am a Canaanite, and I do not deserve your help, nor does my daughter. Yes, Lord. Oh, this kind of humility, saints, is rare in our day. Sinners do not want to acknowledge who they really are. They want us to uphold their sin and call it good, as Pastor Harmon said in his pastoral prayer, that we, uh, we consider it, we call uh, sin moral. This woman didn't do that. Yes, Lord. I'm, I'm a dog. I don't deserve your help. That's right. Amen. She affirms that she is not a child of Israel. She gets that. She affirms that she's a Canaanite, an unworthy Gentile. And she even goes so far as to compare herself to a dog. Do you see that, saints? She compares herself to a dog. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I'm just a dog under the table, Lord. Can you throw me some crumbs? Please. That's her humility. She doesn't object. She is not offended. She disagrees with Jesus. She is not worthy of him. And at that moment, saints, here is where everything changes. She agrees with Jesus. I am not worthy of you. I am utterly dependent upon your grace as much as a dog lying under the table eating scraps that fall from the children's plates. As much as that dog is dependent upon his master's grace, so am I so desperately dependent upon your grace. And at that moment, when she is utterly humiliated, the Lord Jesus suddenly changes his tune. And he commends her for her great faith. And he heals her daughter that very moment. And in the Greek, the words we see our Lord saying to this woman in verse 28 are filled with compassion and warmth toward her. Here we see her true heart toward her. It's as if he's saying to her, Oh dear woman, great is your faith. He loves her. He had compassion upon her. And that's very clear in his response to her. The thing that our Lord wants us to understand is the connection between her faith and her humility. Because to humble yourself like this Canaanite woman did requires great, uh, great faith. So what is that connection? And that's what I want to pursue the remainder of the time. What is the connection between faith and humility? Back home, we've been working through Matthew, of course. And we've been discussing, especially having been through chapter 15, we've been, dis we've been discussing something called formalism. Some of you are probably familiar with formalism. What is formalism? Formalism is the attempt to be righteous by putting on a righteous appearance or having a righteous outward form. 
when you're not really righteous within. That's formalism. The Pharisees were guilty of it. Another uh, an offshoot of formalism is called pretense, and that's really what I want to go after today. What is pretense? Pretense is pretending to be righteous when we are not really righteous. That's pretense. Appearing to, or trying to look righteous when we are not actually righteous. We're pretending. And let me tell you, saints, God hates pretense. He hates pretense. We read of that in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 10, where the prophet is excoriating Israel because of her rebellion and idolatry against the Lord. And in Jeremiah 3.10, God is saying against Israel, she did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. She was putting on a show. She was trying, pretending to be righteous, pretending to love God, pretending to be humble when indeed she was not truly humble, when she did not love God. The Pharisees and scribes were filled with pretense. We see that, again, if you just look earlier on in chapter 15 and then go ahead to uh, chapter 23, you'll see it there. They were full of, they were pretentious hypocrites, having the appearance of righteousness, but being inwardly full of dead man's bones. And that's what separates this dear Canaanite woman from Israel of Jeremiah and from the scribes and Pharisees. She is devoid of all pretense. She came to Jesus honestly and openly admitting her unworthiness, believing that in spite of her unworthiness, he would still accept her and not reject her. You see, she trusted in the power of his grace. That's why her faith was so great. She knew the extent of her unworthiness, and yet she believed that his grace would be great enough to overcome her unworthiness. That's what made her faith great. And indeed, that's what we see happen. And this is why we must share her faith, saints. Because as I said earlier, Jesus, if we're going to come to him, he requires us to come like she did, honestly and without pretense. Not putting on airs, not putting on appearances, but getting rid of pretense instead. Being honest with the Lord. Lord, this is who I am. This is where I've fallen. Help me. I'm a dog. Have mercy on me. But you know what? Getting rid of pretense and putting off appearances. And here's the thing. We can deceive ourselves with our pretensions and with our appearances. The heart, Jeremiah 79. The heart is deceptive above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can dupe ourselves by our own appearances and can convince ourselves that we are righteous. So we can be fooled by our own pretensions, which is kind of frightening in a way, and why we need to hear sermons like this one, actually. And it's really hard for us when we have those pretensions set up. And what do I mean by a pretension? Well, let me give you an example that hits close to home, because this is something that I struggle with. Here's a pretension. Doctrinal correctness, all right? Having doctrinal faithfulness and good doctrine. Scripture requires us to have good doctrine. So understand I'm not condemning sound doctrine. We desperately need sound doctrine. Loving Jesus means having sound doctrine. But it turns into pretension when I think that my sound doctrine can serve as a replacement or a substitute for love for God and others. You see. So I have sound doctrine, and I think on the basis of having sound doctrine, that that makes me righteous. You see. 
because I've memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism forward and backward, and yet I'm not loving my wife, not loving my children, and serving my brother, my brethren, right? Because I'm too busy being right all the time. And I don't, I don't mean to say this to pick on us reform types, not at all, right? But I think this is something we have to be mindful of because we do, we are concerned with doctrine. But that's an idea of pretension, of what pretension is. It's when I'm trying to cover up who I really am. And as I said, it's really hard for us to get rid of pretense. It's really hard for us to be humbled from the heart. Why is that? And here's, here it is. Here's the answer. This is why it's so hard for us to set aside pretense. Because we are afraid of being rejected. We are afraid of being judged. Because we know, we know that if anyone could get a glimpse of what goes on in our hearts and of what really goes on in our minds, if anyone could have an honest view of our character and our weaknesses, we'd be put to shame. And rightly so. Yes, all sin is shameful, and we all still struggle with sin. And so we're terrified of that shame. We're terrified of that rejection and that judgment. We're terrified of people knowing our inmost thoughts. And so that's why we want to have pretensions, and we want to have on those appearances as, as a way of protecting ourselves, because we know we deserve judgment. And we think that if I put on the right appearance, I can somehow get away from judgment because I know I'm evil, and I don't want that evil exposed. So really, if I could sum it up, hope this is clear, pretense is our misguided way of trying to hide the wickedness within our hearts from God. That's what pretense is. I'm trying to fool God. I'm trying to hide my wickedness and unworthiness from Him. You know where this all started? Our struggle with pretense and trying to hide our true selves from the Lord. It started way back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, in verses 7 through 10. What happened there? What happened when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit? The first thing that they recognized was what? That they were uncovered. That they were naked. And now because they had fallen to sin and had become guilty in the eyes of God, now being uncovered was no longer a good thing. Now being uncovered, being exposed, was dangerous. That's why their first reaction was to hide from God. Once they had sinned, they had to hide from Him. And what did they do? They sewed together fig leaves. They attempted to cover themselves, to cover their nakedness, to cover their exposure, so that God wouldn't see them for who they really were, because now they were guilty. Now they were guilty. It all goes back to that very moment when we put together those first fig leaves and tried to cover ourselves. That was the first act of pretense. And when we look ahead to the scribes and Pharisees, and we look at all their traditions and their appearances, their attempts to look righteous when they weren't really righteous, what we see there, more fig leaves. Those are fig leaves. They're putting on fig leaves. When we think of the Roman Catholic Church and their rituals and traditions, fig leaves, more fig leaves. When we trust in doctrine more than we trust in the person of Christ himself, that becomes a fig leaf to us as well. Anything that we use to attempt 
to cover ourselves and protect ourselves from this, the humiliation that comes with exposure before God. So if we think of it this way, we're all walking around with fig leaves. We're all walking around trying to protect ourselves. And, and listen, I am not trying to uh, encourage you to simply take all of your dirty laundry and lay it out before everybody. Not, not at all. Right? This kind of humility I'm talking about, this is what happens between you and the Lord. Yeah? We need to be humble with one another, certainly, but there's a limit. There is such a thing as overshare. So we want to exercise discretion when it comes to confessing our sins to one another, of course. But the kind of utter humiliation I'm talking about, this is what absolutely must happen when we come before Jesus. He demands that when we come to him, all those fig leaves we might have accrued for ourselves and sewn together, they have to come down. We don't want to do that. We don't want to show them who we are. We don't want to deal with how wicked we truly are because it hurts and it's hard and it crushes us. We don't want our sin exposed. Saints, here we see why this kind of vulnerability before the Lord requires such great faith in the Lord Jesus. Because of the corruption of our hearts, it takes great faith in the grace of God to believe that when he is confronted with our unworthiness, he will not reject us. That he will instead receive us by grace alone, through faith alone. And he indeed does not reject us. Why not? Because of what James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 6, that God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. And that's what we find when we humble ourselves before the Lord and we take down the fig leaves and we honestly deal with our sin before him, who we really are. He exalts us. He responds with grace, not rejection, but with grace. Just as a side note, and we're almost through, you know, I often wonder why do more people believe in Jesus? That's probably something we all wonder, most of us, right? Because we know the Lord, we love him, we can't believe what... The Son of God shed His blood on the cross to take God's wrath on, on my behalf. Who wouldn't believe that? Do you know why I think a lot of unbelievers don't come to Christ? And of course we know it's because they're unregenerate and they're not even capable of doing so. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? I think one of the chief reasons why unbelievers refuse to come to Jesus is because they absolutely refuse to undergo the utter humiliation of having their sin exposed. They don't want to get on their knees before Jesus and say, I'm a dog. I am utterly undeserving of you. I cannot demand anything of you. Can I please have some scraps from beneath the tape? Unbelievers aren't willing to do that. It takes, literally, it takes a supernatural work of God in our hearts to overcome that pride, to overcome that fear that he will reject us. The spirit has to soften us, doesn't he? So what's the point of this utter humiliation? Why does the Lord Jesus require us to so humble ourselves when we draw near to him? Well, I think there are a few reasons, but in my mind, here's the chief reason. We see Paul express it in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. The reason why the Lord Jesus requires us to so humble ourselves before him is so that we will see our need for his grace. So that we will see how desperate we are for his grace. You see, saints, in order for us to actually understand and comprehend 
how profound our need for the grace of God in Christ is, we must also be confronted squarely with our unworthiness. And it's not until, until we are reduced to the same level of humility that this Canaanite sister of ours was reduced to. It's not until we're there, on our knees before Jesus, acknowledging our utter unworthiness. It's not until we're there do we really recognize our need for grace. That's what it requires. And here's the wonderful thing. Again, it kind of blows my mind to think about it. Is that when we acknowledge our need for the grace of God, Jesus doesn't reject us. Instead, His grace transforms us. So yes, we are wicked people. We do shameful things. We are sinners. But here's the thing. He's our high priest, isn't He? And so now, through Christ, we don't have to be ashamed as we draw near to God. Because Christ has gone in ahead of us. We don't come before God in our shame. We don't come before God in our wickedness. We come before God clothed in the righteousness of His own Son. So that we need not be afraid. That's the exchange that happens when we humble ourselves before the Lord. And put down our fig leaves and acknowledge our unworthiness. And we acknowledge, I am unrighteous. He gives us, Romans 5, He gives us the gift of righteousness. So we humble ourselves and He takes our shame away. He takes away that fear of rejection and judgment. Because He binds us up with Christ. And cleanses us of our sin by the blood of His Son. So let me conclude with this point, saints, because it's one that's been especially hitting home for me lately. When we are sensing our unworthiness to come before the Lord, because we all go through those seasons of life, as some writers have called them, where we feel we've drifted from the Lord, and we feel unworthy, we perhaps we've fallen into sin, our first impulse, I think, in those moments is to avoid the Lord. It's to avoid prayer, because we're ashamed. We haven't been praying, we haven't been seeking Him with all of our hearts, we haven't been reading His Word, we've been selfish, foolish, and full of pretense. And we realize that. And we think, what would He want to have to do with me? How could He stand another minute with me? And so we keep our distance from Him. Saints, when you're there, Sometimes I'm there, maybe you're not, if not, praise God, but sometimes I still find my place, myself in situations like that. Remember the Canaanite woman. Remember the answer, when we're full of shame, when we're full of sin, and full of pretense, the answer is not to run away from the Lord. The answer is not to put on more fig leaves. The answer is to humble ourselves. The answer is to put down our fig leaves and come before the Lord, confessing our unworthiness and seeking His grace. And His promise to us is this. We see it in John 6. Those who come to Me, I will in no way drive out. He will receive us when we come to Him in humility. So saints, draw near to the Lord. Don't be frustrated by your shame or prevented by your shame, but draw near to Him in full confidence knowing that Christ will receive you by grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Well, saints, in the sermon, Obviously, we heard about our need for humility. 
and we're confronted with our unworthiness as sinners. You know, this table, this supper, confronts us with our unworthiness. Do you know how? Because it points us to the death of our Lord. And His death was necessary because of our unworthiness. And so when we consider that, when we consider that our salvation required the crucifixion of the perfect Son of God, the depth and profundity of His sacrifice should give us a very clear picture of the depth and profundity of our unworthiness. That's what was required to save us. So as we come to the Lord's table, we, there's no room for pretense here. Because this table requires us to come in complete humility, laying aside all pretense and proclaiming the death of Christ until He comes. And in proclaiming the death of Christ until He comes, we are at the same time confessing our unworthiness. Because it was our unworthiness that made His death necessary. So we come here to this table acknowledging, knowing, keenly knowing, that we do not deserve to eat at this table, do we? I am not entitled to be here, nor are you. Where do we belong? We belong under the table, don't we? Eating the scraps that fall from this table. But we're not. We're not. We're seated at the table. Why? Why aren't we beneath the table? Why are we seated at the table? The answer is because the Lord gives grace to the humble. He exalts those who humble themselves. And since we have humbled ourselves before Him and confessed our need for His Son and the precious blood of His Son, God has exalted us. He has exalted us so highly that He calls us His sons and daughters, not dogs. Sons and daughters who He seats at table with Him in His house. By grace and nothing but grace. Saints, He has not left us to eat the crumbs. He has made us His own by the blood of His Son so that we can sit at table with Him, not beneath the table. So as you come to the table this morning, saints, come thanking God with all your heart for His grace and for this privilege. And by all means, come to Him in humility, seeing your need for Christ. Saints, this table is for all who are baptized and are under the authority of Christ and His body, the Church. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website. ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.